Thank you, Joanne. Please take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. We'll be reading uh, verses 16 through 25. We are uh, taking a break from the Gospel of Matthew to look at Galatians 5 and 6. And uh, the purpose really for this, as I explained to you last Sunday night, is to ask the question, how are we to live in light of the cross? Friday night, of course, is Good Friday, and we will remember, commemorate, and celebrate the death of Christ for us. And the question we're, we're looking at is, how should we live in light of what Jesus has done for us? How should we live with one another, specifically? This morning, as you're turning there, this morning in the membership class, um, somebody asked the question, what about churches who don't have membership? How do we view them? And um, we had a, a discussion about the, the benefits of church membership, and I said to the class, uh, of course, we don't want to say that a church is not a true church if they don't have membership, uh, but we think that there are good reasons for having church membership. We think it is a, a biblical practice. The, the church is described in pretty intimate terms, the body of Christ, the family of God, and so we, we see in Scripture the, the connectedness that we are to have in one another's lives. And and uh, as we consider the life of the church and the connectedness that we are to have, uh, how are we to behave toward one another? How are we to treat one another? That's what we're looking at uh, in Galatians 5 and 6. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This book, Galatians, is a, it's a very dire warning about seeking to be justified before God on the basis of your own good works. Paul, you remember, we talked about this last week, Paul wrote this book because the churches in Galatia were starting to buy into this idea that they had some part to play in their justification. And Paul warns these Christians, and he warns us, that that's not the gospel. It's not good news to think that you have to do something to contribute to your right standing with God. 
And so Paul writes this book to, to tell us in no uncertain terms it's Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. We get into very serious theological error when we start to think that we contribute something. Another problem occurs when we think that we can live the Christian life in our own strength. When, when we think, yes, God has saved me by his grace alone, I'm justified solely on the basis of the work of Christ, but now it's on me. It's on me to live the Christian life. If we take that attitude, one of two things is bound to happen. Either one, we're going to fall into pride and self-righteousness thinking, I'm doing it. I'm doing it in my own strength. Or two, we're going to be exhausted trying to do this in our own strength. And ultimately, it will lead us to despair. It will lead us to thinking, I'm a terrible Christian. In fact, I might not even be a Christian. It's important to remember that not only are we justified by God's grace alone, but we are also sanctified by God's grace alone. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more, and here's the language we heard from the catechism, to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism doesn't say sanctification is the work of the Christian. It says it's the work of God's free grace. It's God's work. And so we fall into this extremely dangerous position when we think that we are doing it, that we can do it in our own strength. And that's what we're going to see here tonight in this passage, which we're going to look at in four parts. First of all, there is the war. Secondly, there is the way of the flesh. Third, there is the way of the spirit. And fourth, there is the wealth of the redeemed. The war, the way of the flesh, the way of the spirit, and the wealth of the redeemed. Why is the Christian life so hard? Now, maybe some of you here tonight are going, it's, it's easy to me. I doubt it. Why is the Christian life so difficult? Why do we find it, for example, so hard to love other people? You think about the fact of what you have in Christ. You, you have the forgiveness of all of your sins. The, imputed, the, the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account God has adopted you into his family. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Why is it so hard to live the Christian life? Paul speaks to this in verse 17. He says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul's saying to us, there's a, there's a war within us. There's this constant, continual battle, if you were a Christian, that is going on in your life. We, we looked at this last week, that, that, that we have been set free 
Christian, you're, you're free from the law as the means of your justification. You've been set free, but there is still this ongoing struggle in your life and in my life with sin. In fact, if you, if you know the book of Romans, you might remember what Paul said about his experience as a Christian. Take your Bible for just a moment and go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, which is a few books to the left of Galatians. Romans chapter 7. If you were under the impression that that Paul had an easy Christian life, and if you thought that that Paul is just the perfect Christian, he must never struggle, look at chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul is not talking here about himself as an unbeliever. He's not talking about himself before Acts chapter 9. He's talking about his life as a Christian. This is after his conversion. This is Paul as a believer. And he says, what I see in my life is the things I don't want to do, I do them. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do them. And, And here in Galatians, Paul is talking to believers, isn't he? He's not writing this letter to non-Christians. He's writing this letter to believers. And he's reminding them of the reality of the Christian life. That ongoing struggle. That daily war that we will see in our lives. That struggle to love others. That struggle to forgive others. That struggle to serve others. That struggle to honor God. Martin Luther once coined a a Latin phrase that describes this very well, simul justus et peccator. That means simultaneously justified and sinful. That's who I am. That's who you are. Yes, we are forgiven. Yes, we are right with God. But there is still that, that ongoing battle with our flesh, with our sin nature. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when you see this war raging within you. I thought about this this past week. Aren't you, aren't you glad that Paul tells you these things? Aren't you glad that, that Paul basically says here and, and in Romans 7, here's what you can expect. Here's the reality of the Christian life. This, this idea that, that you can achieve perfection in this life is ridiculous. And, and not only is it ridiculous, but it, it can lead us to question ourselves. It can lead us to go, man, I, you know, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. I must not be a Christian. This battle, this, this war, this struggle is what every Christian experiences. The unbeliever doesn't experience this war. The unbeliever doesn't experience this struggle. And so this struggle is is characteristic of the Christian life. In fact, one author even says the struggle with sin 
is perhaps the clearest sign that one is actually converted. Hear what he said? The struggle with sin is perhaps the clearest sign that one is actually converted. And, and by the way, understanding the, the reality of the struggle also impacts and affects the way that you view other Christians, the, the way you view your, your fellow believers here. When, when you see a fellow believer who's struggling, don't, don't slam them. Don't, don't think to yourself, man, that person must not even be a Christian. No, they're going through the same battle you are, same struggle you are. Come alongside them, encourage them, pray for them. We're going to see in chapter 6, bear their burden. So that's the first thing. I'm very thankful that Paul tells us this. This is the war that we face. Secondly, though, he goes on and he talks about the way of the flesh. Verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are are evident, they're they're obvious. We we know what they are. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Take this, um, this long list, this catalog of sins. You can break it down into three sections, three categories. First of all, there are sexual sins. The, the world, the, the flesh, the, the, the unbelieving world is, is characterized by this. First of all, sexual immorality. It, it refers to any sexual activity that is outside the bonds of marriage. Adultery, homosexuality, even pornography. Impurity literally, literally means unclean. This is, this is not just in terms of unclean deeds, but also relates to our words and our thoughts and our desires. Sensuality refers to to sexual excess. This is the person who has no self-control. These are the kinds of things that have been normalized in our society today. The kinds of things that are paraded before us as good. Things that are told, we are told you you have to accept these things. And, and, And to question anyone in relation to these kinds of sins, you will be labeled labeled narrow-minded, old-fashioned bigoted, homophobic. So sexual sins. Secondly, there are religious sins. You'll notice that that Paul refers here in this passage to idolatry. Children, what is idolatry? Idolatry is um, false worship, isn't it? Heidelberg Catechism gives us a good definition of idolatry. It says that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Idolatry is is putting anything or anyone else in the place that only God deserves. And and it's not just, um, we think of modern day examples of idolatry, you idolize your career or your possessions or your money. This can also refer to false views of God. That also can be idolatry. And so, for example, to, to believe in a God that is only love is idolatry. To, to believe in a God who, who doesn't know the future or control all things is idolatry. Next word you'll notice is sorcery. Sorcery certainly refers to such things as the occult, um, worship of Satan. But there's something interesting uh, about this word. When you look at the word in the original language, it's the Greek word pharmakeia. 
from which, which we get our English word pharmacy. Now, why do you go to the pharmacy? Well, you go to the pharmacy to get your prescriptions. Blood pressure medication, heart medication. But in Paul's day, those who practiced uh, the black arts, those who practiced the occult, would actually make and administer very dangerous prescriptions. They would, they would make these drugs that would alter people's minds so that they would go into some kind of religious trance. And as they're in this religious trance, they would, they would try to contact the realm of the dead. They, they would even make dangerous prescriptions in order to, to harm and kill other people. So there's a lot involved in this word. And you think about how it might apply to our day. Um, do, do drugs in our day, hallucinogenic drugs, mind-altering drugs, do, do those kinds of things fit into this category? I would say yes. Do deadly practices in our day, abortion, euthanasia, fit into this category? I would say yes. So you have sexual sins, you have religious sins, and then you have relational sins. Notice all the words Paul uses, enmity, that's, a, that's hatred for other people. Strife, that's discord and, and, and conflict with other people. Uh, jealousy, that's, that's resenting someone because of what they have. Fits of anger is, is when a person just, just blows up, a sudden outburst, like, wow, where did that come from? Rivalries, this is where people take sides. Dissensions, divisions, this is the result of people taking sides. Envy, this is a, a general unhappiness or, or even anger when someone else succeeds. Drunkenness, no explanation needed. Orgies, this probably doesn't refer to things of a sexual nature. It probably refers to, to wild partying. And so Paul lists this catalog of sins. Sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins. And now notice what he says about them in verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do these things, if you practice these things, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Now this is where this gets a little tricky. Because you look at this, this list, this catalog of sins... There's not one of us here tonight who, who can look at this list and say, I'm good. I've never done any of this. I'm innocent. Whether it's our behavior, our words, or our thoughts, all of us in this room tonight have been guilty of sexual, religious, or relational sins. This list levels us all. And there's a sense in which that's what this list is designed to do. It's designed to level you. It's designed to convict you. It's de designed to, to make us realize the truth of Romans 3.23. All have sinned. Not just the people who don't go to church. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, this is designed to make us see not only our sin, but to see God's solution for our sin, which is the person of Jesus Christ. 
to run to him and, and to recognize that, that in him we have cleansing. In him we have forgiveness. In him we have life. That's what this list is designed to do. Now, now the difference, of course, is that the believer, you hate these sins, don't you? You detest these sins. You see these things in your life, and and you're like the Apostle Paul, and you say, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am. We all long to be free from these sins, and and we recognize that, that only Christ can deliver us, only Christ can forgive us. But the unbeliever, the, the person whose life is, is, is characterized by these things, marked by these things, that person doesn't really care. They don't see their sin for the evil that it is. And it's not because we're better. It's not because we're smarter. It's because the Holy Spirit has opened our heart and our eyes to see these things. When, when Paul says... Notice, those who do such things. He's talking about habitual, ongoing action. He's not talking about the Christian who who may commit one of these sins and and long to be free from it. Who may commit one of these sins and and, and feel grievous hatred for that sin and long to be free, free and delivered from it. Paul's talking about the person who, as the pattern of their life, has this kind of sinful behavior. That is what characterizes the way of the flesh. A Christian, however, is characterized by something different. And that is the third thing, and that is the way of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this passage says, produces fruit in us. Now remember the difference between fruit and root. It's very important. These things that Paul lists here, the the fruit of the Spirit, and and you might even have said these things or memorized these things. You could say them. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. The, the, The fruit of the Spirit are not the root of your salvation. In other words, they're not the cause of your salvation. God doesn't say, if you're just loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good, I will give you salvation. No, these things are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. This is what the Holy Spirit will work in those who are redeemed. We saw this earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism. And so briefly, look at these words. Look at these nine things, the fruit of the Spirit, love, Love's not merely a warm fuzzy. Love's not merely an emotion. Love is sacrificial. Love is service. Men, you love your wives by serving them as Christ served the church by dying for the church. Joy. Joy doesn't mean that you're smiling all the time. Now, now some of you are more smiley than others. Some of us are more sober. That's not what this is talking about. It doesn't mean you're always upbeat and always happy and always whistling a tune. Joy speaks of the attitude of your heart. Because your sins are forgiven, because you are right with God, because you you have the promise of eternal life, you're joyful. You're joyful. 
Next word is peace. The Bible refers to two different kinds of peace that we have as Christians. First, there is, a, there is an objective peace. In other words, before you knew Christ as your Savior, you were at enmity with God. He was your enemy, and you were his enemy. But, but now you are no longer the enemy of God. No longer is there enmity with him. That enmity has ceased. And we now have objective peace with God. But there's also a subjective peace that you know in your heart, isn't there? You, you say to yourself as, as, you, as you sit there tonight or as you go home tonight or as you work tomorrow or go to school or whatever it is that you're doing, you, you can say to yourself, because I have an objective peace with God, because God is my Father, this subjective peace floods my heart. And I'm so thankful. Patience, that's the ability to, to be long-suffering, have a long fuse. It's the ability to endure trial and difficulty. The phrase, the patience of Job, right? All that Job endured, and yet he would not curse God. Kindness. This, this speaks not just to our actions, it also speaks to our hearts. A, a kind person is a person who's always willing to help. If they hear of a need or they know of a need, they, they want to help others. That's a, that's a kind-hearted person. Goodness, this is, this is very similar to kindness with the added piece of, of generosity. A person who is characterized by goodness is not stingy with their kindness, not stingy with their service. Faithfulness, this is the person who can be counted on. They're reliable, they're trustworthy. Gentleness, this is not a person who is prone to outbursts, not prone to, to fly off the handle. Instead, he or she is marked by a humility, by a, by a sweet disposition. Self-control, this is a person who's not given to excess. Now, it's hard to imagine two more diametrically opposed lists than these two. As, as one author writes, this is the fruit of the Spirit versus the weeds of the devil. So we have here. I ask you tonight, what would you prefer to see in your life? The Spirit's fruit or the devil's weeds? What would we prefer to see in our church? What would be more profitable for us as Christians, as a congregation? We all know that the weeds of the devil never really satisfy us. I mean, does, does, does sexual sin bring true fulfillment? Does idolatry bring meaning to life? Does lasting happiness come from enmity and strife? and division, and drunkenness. This makes me think of what David, or the psalmist, writes in Psalm 1. You might know the psalm. If you don't, turn over to Psalm 1 for just a moment. I want you to notice the contrast that the psalmist gives here for us. There are two different ways, just as we see in our text, the way of the flesh versus the way of the spirit. This is the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What a contrast, right? The way of the righteous leads to joy. It leads to meaning. It leads to purpose. It leads to fulfillment, true fulfillment. The way of the wicked, the psalmist says, will perish. The the wicked are blown away, just like the chaff. Children, the, the devil's weeds will never satisfy you. They'll never make you really happy. The Spirit's fruit brings true happiness and lasting satisfaction. And this is what we long to see in our lives. This is what we long to see in our church. Not the weeds of the devil, but the fruit of the Spirit. And that leads to the question, what what can I do to bear this kind of fruit? What steps can I take to, to be this kind of person? It's, it's one thing to, to understand the text. It's, it's one thing to understand what Paul's saying here. But it's another thing to, to apply that text to our lives and, and to say, how can I be this kind of person? And that's the fourth thing that we want to see, and that is the wealth of the redeemed. Christian, you need to understand, and I hope that you already do, that, that God has given you an amazing gift, an amazing gift. There is a word here in Galatians 5, actually it's a person, who is mentioned seven times in this passage. Do you know who that person is? It's the Holy Spirit. If you're back in Galatians, notice some of Paul's references. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. See, here's your wealth. Here's your spiritual riches, one of them. There is someone who is fighting for you. There is someone who is on your side in this battle. And that someone is God, the Holy Spirit. You see, if we had to to fight this battle in our own strength, we would fail every time. Every time. But we have been given the Spirit. Again, it is not we ourselves who produce this fruit in our lives. It is the Spirit of God who does this. This is why Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And how do we do that? How do I, how do I walk by the Spirit? Well, this is where what we call the means of grace comes in. 
Maybe you've heard that phrase before, the means of grace. In, in our, our membership class or our inquirer's class, whatever you want to call it, we, we take some time in one of the classes to talk about the means of grace. In other words, the, the means that God uses to grow us spiritually. Again, as we saw from the Westminster, our, our sanctification is not our work. It's a work of God's free grace. But, but God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And so I ask my membership class, I say, well, what, what means does God use to grow you? I ask you rhetorically, how would you answer that question? What means does God use to grow you, to sanctify you? Well, historically, the Reformed Church has said that the two primary means that God uses to grow us is the Word and the Spirit, or the Word and the Sacraments, I'm sorry, the Word and the Sacraments. That the Spirit works principally through Word and Sacrament to grow us. In other words, it is as we sit under the preaching of the Word on Sundays and participate in the sacraments that the Spirit is pleased to grow us. The Spirit works primarily through word and sacrament. Now, certainly there are other means that God uses to grow us. He he uses our own personal devotion time, reading the Bible and prayer. He uses fellow believers, iron sharpens iron kind of thing. He uses trial, difficulty, hardship to grow us. But the primary means of grace, the primary means of spiritual growth, the way of walking in the Spirit are word and sacrament. That highlights the importance of this day. Now you say, well, you're supposed to say that you're a preacher. But it's true. And I believe that 1,000%. This day is important. We, we do not do ourselves any favors when we absent ourselves regularly from Lord's Day worship. It is, our, it is not to our spiritual benefit to be inattentive during a sermon or to participate in the Lord's Supper by just you know, going through the motions. We, we are called to actively, attentively, Partake of these means so that the Spirit may continue his work in our lives. And as we do this, we will, in turn, be a blessing to one another. Our love, our joy, our patience, our kindness, our goodness will grow, and we will be a blessing to one another in this congregation. And so to walk by the Spirit means to trust the Spirit that he is using those things to grow you. It it is to live your life with the, the constant awareness that God the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And that as you partake of the means of grace, principally, not only But as you partake of those means, he is going to use those things to grow us. Now, now we may not think that's very flashy. We may think we had more you know, smoke and light shows and exciting things to grow us, but the fact of the matter is that God uses, and we call these the ordinary means of grace. They're pretty ordinary. It's a guy standing behind a wooden box speaking. 
It's bread and wine and water. But God uses those ordinary means by his spirit to grow us. Last Sunday night, I gave you an encouragement at the end of the night, and that was to think of the freedom that Christ has won for you. To think of the fact that that you have been set free by Jesus Christ, free from the, the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, one day free from the very presence of sin. And so the encouragement was for us to really meditate on that, to really think about that. And, and then in the joy of that freedom to, to serve one another, to be an active part of the body here at Zion. That was last Sunday night. Think of your freedom. Tonight, the encouragement is to remember the great gift that you have been given. You've been given the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? God has given to me personally the very one who hovered over the face of the waters at creation. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And then to recommit ourselves, if necessary, to the importance of these ordinary means of grace so that the the Spirit will continue his good work in us, producing this fruit in us so that we will also fight against the desires of the flesh. And this will be a blessing to you. This will be a blessing to everyone in this congregation as God works these fruit in us. And let me end with this. This war between the flesh and the spirit will not last forever. We will not always live in Romans 7. One day we will be set free from the very presence of sin. The war will be over. And on that day we will experience a joy and a blessedness that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has even imagined. The blessing that awaits us. But until then, Christian, remember you have the Spirit. Trust him. Trust him. And submit yourself to those means of grace so that he might work this fruit in you so that you might be blessed and that you might be a blessing to others as well. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for telling us the truth that we can expect this war, this battle, this struggle. But Lord, we know that this war will not go on forever. We know that one day it will end and one day we will be with you. Lord, until then, we pray that we would trust the spirit who is within us and that as we partake of the word and the sacraments, that you would use these things to grow us, to grow us in these fruit so that we may be a 